Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden at Witt University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, every once in a while, we come across some of the most interesting people. And normally on our show, we have a set agenda. That is, we invite a guest to when we've got a, a number of questions that you and I work on in advance. They're lined up to the guest expertise. But every once in a while, we have a guest who we just find so interesting, we don't even know where to begin. And recently, you were in Beijing, and you ran across a gentleman by the name of Leo Li. And uh, and you told me all about him, and it was really just like, oh, we got to get this guy on the show. Yeah, Leo is is an, has an amazing CV, um, like amazing media work, amazing academic work, um, and he was the the first um, China Daily correspondent in Africa. So he, um, after having learned Hausa, the Nigerian language, so so it, it's it's a, a, a real thrill to speak with him. Okay, and you don't hear us gushing like this very often, and I, I think some of our previous guests are going to feel a little bit envious. But before we introduce, actually, we get to Leo. Let me just kind of take you through this guy's resume. Uh, he started studying Hausa as an undergraduate at the Beijing Foreign Studies University back in 2004. So remember, let's go back to 2004. That was really the, the early days uh, of the China-Africa, of this latest wave of Chinese engagement in Africa. Uh, then back in 2008, he went to Ghana for a full-year internship for the first time. Uh, then he went off to Oxford and Cambridge to get master's degrees in African studies and international relations. So two master's degrees at both Oxford and Cambridge. Okay. After that, he became an international news reporter at the China Daily in 2010, uh, where he was sent to a number of different conflict zones and developing regions. And in 2012, he was relocated, relocated to Africa uh, as, the, as you pointed out, Kobus, the, the, the first reporter based in, uh, in Africa for the China Daily, which I think is really interesting. Then uh, he went on to work for CGTN, which is uh, formerly CCTV News, the TV network of the uh, Chinese Communist Party. And that was his last job be before uh, he's, he, he quit uh, TV and media to become uh, a wonk like you, Kobus, and to get a PhD in African politics with a focus on Nigeria. And he's at Tsinghua University in Beijing, where he just began this past September, just to give people an idea of what Tsinghua is. I think it is the, the Harvard or the Princeton or the Stanford of, of China. So from Oxford, from Cambridge to Tsinghua, uh, wow. So that is quite a resume. Leo, we are honored to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Very nice to join you both. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. And, and again, as I said at the top, we're not going to have any kind of set agenda. But I just want to kind of get, you know, tell me a little bit about back in 2004, what inspired you to study Hausa and to become interested in Nigeria and Nigerian politics? Because back then in 2004, um, it wasn't fashionable at all. Not that it's really that fashionable today for Chinese undergraduate students to study an African language and to focus on African politics. What was your interest as a student in Africa? Well, Eric, thank you so much for your, this kind of very kind introduction. I'm actually a bit pressured about this. Well, I always tell people that, you know, I didn't choose Africa. Africa chose me at the time, thanks to the very strange and special education system in China back then. Um, I went to Beijing Foreign University without the college entrance examination, which is really a nightmare for everyone. Um, but the, the premise at the time was to take whatever major they assigned to my high school 
And that was the only way to go to the university for my province. So I took half the language as my major. That was the assigned major in the year from the university to my high school. Well, I didn't know too much about Africa and that language, but the university was a really good one. That is the biggest reason I went to the university and took the, the, the major. And then, well, that's the very beginning of my story with Africa. Since then, it seems like my destiny was connected with this continent forever, some, something like, you know. So that is the beginning of the story. So you've been involved in with Africa long before it became a mainstream thing to do, you, you know, to the extent that it now is um, for, for Chinese academics or reporters. Um, how have you seen the, the image of Africa change in China or has it changed in China since, you know, since those early days? My personal story is actually a very good reflection of this kind of development of China-African relations. At the beginning of my major and my study in the college, um, like what I, I have said, we didn't know too much about Africa. And it's quite upset for most of us, most of my classmates, we thought, well, why we should take African language as our major, where our future would be. We were kind of very confused about our future and worried about the future. And we couldn't do anything at the time. The only thing we could do was kind of keep going on, keep going studying the language till we graduate. But soon we found the relationship between China and Africa became a very, very hot topic. It seems like we can find a lot of opportunities after graduation. But the thing is that the knowledge about Africa didn't change, didn't change too much. Although there, there was kind of large amount of Africa-related information in China. No channels available at the time, apart from the, apart from the class and textbooks. From the media, we can only get the stereotyped stories. Like, you know, stereotyped stories like you can find in the traditional Western media and other mainstream media. So I, I, I don't think the image changed too much um, till 2008, I, I, I should say. I, I, because, you know, after the Beijing Olympic Games, um, there are kind of more students. I don't know why, but there is kind of change of the students and scholars focusing on Africa from China side. I don't know why the trend just now started, uh, but that was the, 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 the fact. So um, there are more information from the internet. There are more information from the um, news, the, the media outlets, different media outlets. And we understand Africa, our oriented approach compared with the, 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 the previous time. So after 2012, 2015, these two periods, I mean, the, the, the China-Africa summit under the FOCAR framework, people understand Africa much, much better than my time in 2004 at the time. So I should say it's a progress. It's a progress of understanding Africa now in China, but still there is, there is a huge gap in terms of the so-called real Africa and the real image of Africa. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to pick up on some of the points that you've made, particularly 
for the fact that you are up in Beijing, I'm here in Shanghai, and it would be interesting to kind of look from China out about Africa. And you've talked about progress. And what was interesting is that in the early 2000s, China really put out this message that it, China and Africa were equals, developing countries, both the victims of colonialism from the West. China is not a Western power the way that the, you know, the European imperial powers were. And they really kind of positioned themselves in a way to say, we are not the West. And yet what we've seen now in the past three or four years is, a, is a, what, I, what I think is in some ways an adoption of a lot of the messaging about Africa that we've seen in the West, the paternalism, the, the type of, uh, of caricatures. So I was in, in the subway the other day and there was a whole series of, of ads in the subway with uh, Chinese actors, Li Bingbing and others, you know, promoting wildlife conservation. And then other, there was a whole other series of ads of help save an African baby. And I was like, oh, here we go. Then, of course, we had Wolf Warrior, which was, you know, this giant blockbuster of a movie, $800 million so far at the box office. Chinese moviegoers loved it. And it was as stereotypical about Africa in many ways that as other Western films. I'm sure you probably saw the comparisons to it. And so I'm wondering if we're, you know, we talk about progress. Yes, there is a lot more information available because young people like you, uh, are reporting on it and you're studying it. But at the same time, there also seems to be a growth in the pop culture stereotypes that were so destructive in the West that now seem to be making their way to Africa, uh, to China. Do you see that same, that same trend? Well, Eric, actually, what you're talking about is absolutely right. In terms of the direct communication exchanges between China and Africa, what they have been claiming is that they are not using the, the Western-style way to, 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 to do business or kind of to communicate with Africa. It's true. For instance, this kind of inter intervention-free kind of aid and the so-called the equal partnership. Well, but that's, that's about the direct communication exchanges. But when it comes to understanding when it comes to understanding Africa for normal people, there's no big difference than that situation in the Western countries. It's full of ignorance. I should have used the, the, the way ignorance. For instance, what you have been talking about is the, um, is the movie um, Wolf Warrior. Well, we were so upset to... to I mean, the so-called Africanists in China, they, 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 they were so upset to see this movie because what we are trying to do from our perspective to understand and learn Africa from the so-called China perspective, we hope to offer the world a new way to understand the, this continent and the real development of this country of this of different countries in Africa. But for other people, the normal people in China, as what I said, there is a huge gap of information about this continent. People couldn't understand Africa properly. They cannot get rid of the stereotypes established previously, you know, by various channels, especially the very solid and strong um, inf information from the, from outside media. So they think Africa. They think about Africa in a way that the Western countries used to use. The Wolf Warrior is very Hollywood, you know, style to, to, to I mean, I mean, to describe kind of to, to, to depict Africa's image. Well, 
there is a huge debate now in China about this movie, and also there is another debate about a display of the pho- pho- of photographs that that you know compared African people with with the gorillas. That is the ignorance that Chinese people, the normal Chinese people, made about Africa. They couldn't have the chance to explore, to learn the country in a proper way. Given the population base and given the scale of this country, we only have like hundreds of people are directly involved in Africa-related research or media or you know other aspects of this a circle. We call it a circle, but too many people out there. Eric, I think you know the situation when you when you walk on the streets, you can see how many people are there in China. But they don't have any access. They don't have any chance to go to Africa. They don't have a proper channel to learn Africa. For instance, like where Kenya is. I know this kind of animal migration, but where Kenya is, they have to spend a lot of time and energy to find out that. Rather, they, they won't do this. They only know that okay, the animal migration is in Africa. So, Leo, when you are talking to Chinese people about about your experiences in Africa. What are some ways that you use to make it more understandable? And particularly considering that you're focusing on on Nigeria so much, like it's so easy to think of China and Nigeria as completely different planets.、Um, but what are actually some of the the correspondences or some of the overlaps or, or similarities between China and Nigeria? Every time when I talk about Africa to, I mean, friends or people around me. Who has little knowledge about this continent? I will always tell them that you know treat Africa as a continent that consists of 54 countries, and treat each country as a normal country in your thought. By saying normal country, that is, I mean, a concept of you know a proper population, a proper political system, and. It's not only about civil wars. It's not about diseases. It's not only about the negative images that you were familiar with about Africa. I mean, they are normal countries with proper development and changes. For instance, when I explain Nigeria to them, it doesn't necessarily to tell everything about the so-called ethnic politics or kind of identity politics or kind of the, the, the conflicts between Christians and Muslims. I don't need to tell them this because this is something that you, they can read from the news, the normal news channels. But but what they don't know is that the country are actually trying to develop themselves from every aspect they can. They think it's a total disaster. It's a kind of a place with conflicts everywhere. They don't know Lagos development. They don't know how Abuja is from, you know. They don't know Kano as a business center in the north. There are cities, there are developments, there are factories there. Even this kind of basic information and basic concepts are very, very strange to most of the Chinese people. I have to tell them this from the very beginning, to tell them it's a huge, it's a huge country. It's the most populous country in Africa. Something like. You know, in China, everything there, including the scale of the country and the population of the country, is just like you know, one tenth of that in China. So people would think about, okay, they have the ethnicity problem, they have the population problem, they have the resources problem, and they are trying to 
they're trying to come out from those kind of problems to get their own development. So, when you finish your PhD program at Tsinghua University in African politics, what is your goal? What do you want to do with it? I'm I'm curious what you how you want to apply yourself after you are a doctorate in African politics. Well, look, um, the reason why I I'm back is that um, when I was in media, everything we're talking about in Africa is somewhat China related, which means when you're talking about the African stories or Africa reports. It's more or less related to China, but that's not enough. If you claim as an emerging power in the world, if you claim yourself want you know to, to you want to understand the world from your own perspective, it's not enough to understand a bilateral relationship based on your own perspective. You have to know what is actually going on. On the country you are dealing with, you need to identify their real needs, their real challenges, and to see if what you can do and how you can match the needs. It's not it's not kind of you no, know, well, priority thing for China to do its business with African countries from you know very beginning to the end. So now there is a lack of people or scholars in China to. Properly learn Africa. There are many experts here. They are very good. I mean, they know the um, literatures and also China-African relations, something like that. But for the ongoing develop, the ongoing situation, and ongoing development in African countries, they are not enough. There needs to be more people understanding this um, continent, this 54 continent. I mean. A huge demand of this kind of people. So what I want to do is, when I graduated from this of this PhD study, I want to be a teacher, probably in the university, to raise the interests for more students focusing on Africa, and then to. I can't say that I would have the opportunity to understand the to, to understand this continent with a so-called China perspective because I don't know what China perspective is now. But with more students and more people involving into this process, I believe in the future there would be one. I mean, there would be a so-called Chinese perspective understanding Africa. So I want to raise interest for more people in this area. Leo Li is a PhD candidate at、uh, in African politics at the prestigious Tsinghua University in Beijing. He joins us on the line from Beijing.、Uh, Leo was the first correspondent for the China Daily newspaper in Africa, and later he worked for CGTN. There, he is a speaker of Hausa, and he studied、uh, Nigerian politics.、Uh, a fascinating character, and really for me. Uh, so exciting as again part of this new young generation of Chinese scholars, journalists, activists. We've had a number on that in many ways are going to shape the future of China-Africa relations and really challenge so many of the preconceptions about who the Chinese are who are engaging. 
with various parts of African societies. And I think understanding that there are people like Leo out there who are thinking critically about Sino-African relations and really want to help train a new generation, a next generation, an up-and-coming generation of young Chinese on how to engage Africa is especially exciting. So, uh, Leo, it was a pleasure to have you on the program tonight. Thank you, sir, very much for staying up late for us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Eric. Thank you so much. And as we have said, Eric, I mean, there is kind of younger generation of Chinese people living, working, and studying Africa. And this is the change of the previous image of China-African relations. I hope this can keep going. Thank you, Eric. Kobus, what I found so interesting about our discussion with Leo was the idea that he represents this new generation of academics and journalists who are focusing on kind of China's engagement in Africa. And I think the timing is going to be so important now because it's going to be more difficult for Africa to capture China's attention, I think. And I think it's going to be hard in places like Tsinghua University to encourage more young Chinese scholars to focus on African affairs, in part because the growing popularity of the Belt and Road, which is the global Chinese trading agenda, which is attracting so much attention Africa, of course, just being one stop on this, but Central Asia, the Persian Gulf, the Middle East, Europe, all of these parts of the world now are are engaging with China. So Africa is just one player among many. So do you see it in terms of the fact that there's already so much Chinese investment in places like Southeast Asia? Now that the Belt and Road is running through Black Pass there as well, it'll become even easier for those countries to draw more Chinese attention and that Africa now has to fight a new fight to make itself heard in this crowd. There's no doubt that that's the case. And that's why, uh, you know, I was particularly heartened by what I heard from Leo about the fact that he is so passionate about Africa because you know, Africa will need advocates both from within Africa to, to engage China, but also within Chinese academia and journalism and business and politics to, to keep the flame alive because it doesn't stay alive by itself in an era where there is so much competition for Chinese resources, attention, and money, uh, as is the case with the Belt and Road. I agree. I think it's also one of, one of, China's, one of Africa's problems is its particularity. You know, it has its own particular set of problems and its own particular set of realities. Within that, there's a lot of promise, but that promise has to be translated to to an investor like China. You know, China that's used to doing business in a place like Thailand, for example, or um, Bangladesh, where, where all of this offshoring and um, labor-intensive industry is already set up, it's already running. Comparing that to a place like Nigeria, that's a lot more complicated, a lot more, many more languages, you know, it's, it's a, just a, a bigger ask and you need to, to invest more. In order to make that understandable, I think people like Leo are very valuable, people who speak some of the local language, people who have spent time both within the Chinese system and the African system. I think more and more those people will be, become these kind of middle ground, you know, kind of middle men and women, you know, to, to facilitate those kind of investments. You know, it was interesting because I had never met Leo before our discussion, and you met him in Beijing when you were there most recently. And when I heard the sharp British accent, it was a little bit, uh, you know, of of surprise to me. But what it reveals also is this incredibly cosmopolitan, globalized new generation of young Chinese. He reminds me in many ways of 
Huang Hongxiang of China House in Kenya, who's been a frequent guest on our show, who studied at Columbia and uh, and is, goes back and forth between China and Africa as well. Uh, there are so many of these young Chinese who are out there doing things. And I think what I hope that our listeners are going to take away from these discussions is that this new generation of 20-something uh, Chinese activists, academics, scholars, journalists, um, don't necessarily fit into the caricatures that a lot of people have about the Chinese. And I think that's a very interesting reflection that, that to, t- to take away from the conversation with Leo. Uh, final thoughts from you, Kobus. Yeah. No, I completely agree. In, in addition, that he also reminded me in a, in a slightly different way of African students that I met in Beijing the last few, the last two, two times I was there, where every time I met these African students, they're frequently a student body made up of individuals from lots of different African countries. So there's like, you know, for example, one Liberian, one Egyptian, one kind of Congolese, et cetera, et cetera. And not necessarily groups of people from one particular African country, but this kind of African diaspora. And frequently they like Mandarin was their their kind of lingua franca. So they would be bantering back and forth in Mandarin, um, which would overcome a lot of the Africa's linguistic barriers. And it, they, they gave me a similar kind of feeling of young people who are super cosmopolitan, who are moving from one place to the other within the global south. Um, not necessarily, you know, like um, Leo spends a lot of time in the UK, but, you know, a lot of these African students tend to, go from one metropole within the global south to another, um, you know, moving from Brazil to South Africa to China and, and back and so on. Um, so, yeah, they, they kind of both, both of them give you this vision of what young people and young scholars might look like in the future. It's definitely a new world, a very exciting world. Well, that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Of course, Kobus and I are here every week uh, with a new show where we bring you people like Leo uh, we're trying to bring more people from both sides, from the, the Chinese side and the African side. Uh, it's not always that easy, but uh, so if you have some recommendations of people that you think we should speak with and feature on the show, people you'd like to hear from, uh, drop us a note. Any number of ways you can reach us on Twitter, on Facebook, uh, direct via email. Uh, go to our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com and you will find all of the contact information. We'd love to hear from you and we'd love to get your recommendations of people who you would like to see featured on the show and discussions that you'd like us to have. So we'll be back again next week with another edition of the show. For Kobus van Staten, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to Facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show or follow China Africa News that's updated every four hours, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadenesk or Eric at Eolander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Subscribe to the China Africa podcast on iTunes or download the mobile apps for iOS, Android, or Windows Phone. Just head over to your favorite store and search for China Africa. China Africa.